So Evelyn, were your ears ringing? Well, I saw the post on LinkedIn and I was like, oh, that's nice. They mentioned me. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I should probably go listen to the episode. And I was like, oh, they did a little bit more than mention me. Oh, no, we <laughs> talked about you. Yeah, it's fun to, to talk about because we can just full on just say like exactly what hits us in the moment. Now that you're here, we have to be a lot more to be more thoughtful. I mean, this this is we're very honored to have you join the podcast. This is the first time you've joined the Arca Speak podcast. We're 293 episodes in. That's crazy. Which is insane, right? Is. <laughs> and you're a fellow podcaster, Practice Disrupted with Janine Chastain. I mean, there's there's so much we can talk about. We can we can talk about architecture. We can talk about school. But I, I think, you know, the reason I asked if your ears were burning was we did talk about you an episode or two ago and actually your post, your provocation on LinkedIn that architects <laughs> are three recessions away from, well, I don't know what you said, extinction. Extinction. Which was you, up, you used I a mean, pretty harsh word there. Yeah. It was also a lead in to the talk that I gave, I don't know, back in... Um, when was it? On a very auspicious weekend. It was the same weekend that Trump took office or that he was elected. He was, yeah, that he was elected president. I was at the contract design conference. John Sarnecki had invited me. He was the editor at the time. And that was the lead in to my keynote there. So hmm. I don't know. I, I feel like. So you've like, been thinking about this for a while. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. it wasn't, I don't know, it was, it was a little bit clickbaity. I'm, I'm glad you guys, like, I had no science about it, but you guys said, but there is, there is some thing there. So I appreciate you for pointing that out. So thank you. I mean, you know, as, as much as you could say, you know, there isn't any science, I mean, we're living those facts. So, you know, in a way, just by the sheer appearance of the profession, that's science enough for me. If you can feel it. Yeah. If you can feel it, it's real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so what was the feedback then versus now? Because there was a huge kind of, I don't know, it wasn't a pile on. It was a, there was a, a, people came out to respond to your post, right? And there was a lot of dialogue going on there. Some of it was, I'm sure it's all over the map and I haven't revisited it for a week or two now. So I'm just wondering, like, if you were to kind of paint a picture of the types of responses, like, what does that spectrum look like? Oh, so, yeah, it's really interesting. So, of course, you have, there's actually a handful, if you want to know who not to go work for, there is a handful of individuals on the post that literally said, things are not changing, we've survived this far, get back to work. One literally said, like, mm -hmm. put your head down and get back to work. Uh, yep. So we have that. We have a lot of people that agree. And then we have a lot of people that are that were forward thinking and disagreed. But I don't think they actually read. The difference is I didn't the the picture of the quote was just the opening line. Right. That we're three mm -hmm. recessions right. away from being extinct. So I feel like you could tell when some people were just reacting to that reacting versus to the those yeah. who actually read the body of the post and reacted a little bit right. differently. And the body yeah. of the how post How many times least, do you say this? How many times do I was going to say this? how many times how many times do you say this nowadays? I saw a post, I only read the headline, but it said this and that you yeah. I think so many of us do that all the time, right? And I so I kind of can't blame people because yeah, we're busy. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of noise in the world and that is the only thing 
that people look at that's because that's all they have time for. So you can't blame them. But at the same time, there is like this provocation to get people into the conversation, but there's more depth to it. There's more nuance to it, just like our profession, right? So right. I can imagine like that's a huge part of it. Yeah. And there are some very intelligent people that are professors and deans at universities. Like I said, I hope you read the whole post before you responded, but I agree with you and we have a lot of work ahead of us. One person in particular said, you know, there is more work for architects now on the table than ever. And I said, yes, if you redefine the work that an architect does, but if you are of a traditional mindset where the role and the scope of the architect falls within traditional practice, then I would say that's what's diminishing, right? But even with, you know, if you want to take it from the traditional mindset of thinking about, yeah, there's tons of work. I work in a firm that has a lot of work. Uh, we just went through a state of the union today at our like one firm meeting. But that doesn't change the fact that, you know, a lot of the points that you made in the post really are pointing out the problems within the profession that really need to be forefront in the conversation, forefront in everybody's minds of how we can survive these next three. Because every recession, you can tell by the gray here that I've been through a few of them in architecture. And it's really about, it's this kind of, um, what is it? You know, hire and fire, you know, kind of philosophy. It's just first like, in, oh, first well, you know. Or last, last in, first out. Yeah. Okay. You know, we're about to hit a recession. Uh, we start to see our billing slow down. We're starting to see all of this stuff. How can we survive? And I've worked at firms that once I uh, left them, they didn't survive and, you know, closed up shop. And then there were others that, like, you know, well, we're going to lay off 30, 40, 50% of our work staff and, you know, basically overload the people that we have. You got to be thankful that you still have a job. You know, it's just like, yeah, yeah but I'm working from 6 a.m., to 12 p.m. So how thankful can I really be? Right. <laughs> you know, and it's so clickbaity if we want to call it that. I, I just thought it was just like, yeah, let's have the conversation. And it's just like, you know, go in there, read the points, you know, look at, you know, the post itself and, and really just say, take a good, honest look at the profession and say, okay, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? Let's have a conversation about how to improve it. You know, so that we can actually survive those recessions. Yeah. Yes. I don't know. Yes. And. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I. So and then. So to follow on with that, I just published a second article in a series of three with Architizer that looks at this call to change the culture of the profession, both in school. Uh, Cormac, you mentioned that you and Evan had it. I'm sure I'm sure your conversation about Cyrick was probably following the the notorious video last year. But but why Oh we these, chatted about that, yeah. Yeah, but why these type of things were coming are coming to the forefront now. Um but also that this has been a problem for decades, right? That yeah. that yeah. we haven't and again I think at the end of your that your episode that you were referencing where you first talked about this, it's we've never done anything about it. But I feel like now is like there's a there's absolutely a call to action. And if I would say there is more work than ever for architects 
if they choose to leave traditional practice and now we are no longer competing with just ourselves. Um, yeah. Mm. So you said that you originally gave this, this idea, you put this out in front of a keynote speech that you did in 2016. What was the response then? And then maybe we'll compare that to what you got now, or was it, was it about the same? I think it was about the same. I mean, the interesting thing with keynotes is, um, it's very easy to open with a provocative statement. And then five minutes in, I think people have forgotten what you opened with, but you've gotten the, at least their attention now. And a lot of that conversation was kind of the work that I was doing as a strategist at MK Think. And that group was specifically, you know, fostered in a design firm to expand services on both ends of what we define as traditional practice and to say like, mm -hmm. like, look there, it can be done in a small and medium sized firm, but if we don't do these type of services, others will, and they will have more touch points with the clients. They will be driving the client's decision-making when it comes to their real estate portfolio. And we need to figure out a way to get in front of all of that. And, you know, my argument now is, you know, everybody's like, oh, but we're architects. We need to focus on the building. And I was like, yeah, but if we do all of these things, too, we will actually be at the table and we'll be able to build more of the buildings that we want to build. But if we're not the mm -hmm. ones guiding that decision-making process and we're only the ones responding to an RFP after the fact, I think we're limiting ourselves. Mm -hmm. What do you got, Cormac? You got something? Uh, I was, <laughs> was going to say, yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny that I actually had a very similar conversation with somebody today about that very fact is that when we're so singularly focused on the building and not building a, a larger relationship with a client, building, being a part of, you know, their, their building. Somebody had asked me, you know, not too long ago, like, what was my most successful building or successful project? And it was one where, you know, I was, I was talking about, it was one that I was able to be immersed not only in the process of developing the program for the building and everything else, but I was really immersed into their business and mm -hmm. understanding their business and really understanding what it was that they were trying to achieve, what was their mission, and being able to be a part of that and then understand how that building can respond to their business and how that building can respond to their overall mission. And we, we're so singular-minded in in many cases where you're right. I mean, you know, people are like, we're outmoding ourselves if we're just going to stay building focus because <laughs> we're starting to see, you know, posts on LinkedIn and other places where people are taking building, you know, a lot of like the traditional building practices or the lot of, a lot of the traditional design practices out of our hands. And so, sure. you know, if we're not, well, you know, bringing more to the yeah. table, then why are we at the table? But but that's the commoditization Commodi yep. of architectural practice, right? That's it because right. everybody's offering exactly the same services for the same fees. The only yeah. thing you can do is lower your fee a point yeah. here, a point there until there's yeah. eventually nothing. Oh, no, but if because we everybody's doing the, the title same thing. architect, all of a sudden our fees are going to go in the right direction. And if the, if the largest organization in the world starts marketing about architecture, all of a sudden our fees are going in... I don't know. I earlier, I think it was in the middle of last year, I started talking about our fee structure or like our services, Evan, on 
um, commodification as like, it's like trying to get people to choose a, a different toothpaste standing in the toothpaste aisle, right? Like, mm -hmm. like, yeah, what's the difference? What is it? Like our, you know, our fees are going to go up and down together. We have to differentiate. We have to, we have to stop producing toothpaste and we have to move on to <laughs> something else if we want to demand higher fees or, or more, or more value. Or you could look at the Tesla model right? Where when they came out, they were such a differentiated product that they could require that individuals pay more for that. But you can't mm -hmm. all of a sudden mm -hmm. blame kind of the condition of, I don't see a world where we're going to be able to turn around tomorrow. And, and for the exact same services we're delivering, all of a sudden, people are like, oh, I see the value of design. I'm going to pay architects right. that much more for what they're doing. No, I... I I, I think this totally falls under the the idea of Buckminster Fuller's quote of, you know, to actually go in a new direction, you have to design something new to make the old version obsolete. I don't think you can put enough band-aids on this system to do what you just said, right? Which is to completely change the perception of something everybody's used to, to have twice as much, 5x, 10x, the value that it should. There's no way to, to put enough band-aids on it to make it happen. There's an example of a, of a really cool outcome, but a really crappy further outcome in design practice, which was a hospital had hired the firm to do the study to say, you know, we want to do a new ER. And that new ER needed to have all this program in it. And basically what the, the firm was able to do was define that Actually, after studying it all, what they were able to determine after doing a study was that they didn't need a new building at all. All they needed to do were reconfigure some walls in their existing facility, and it changed everything. Okay, so really cool outcome, right? The client didn't have to spend tens of millions of dollars building a new tower on their hospital that they thought they were going to have to do. And the crappy further outcome was the architect didn't get paid anything to do to figure this out for them. Like, what was that solution actually worth? It was worth tens of millions of dollars. It, that's what it was worth, right? Because that's what they were going to do. And so, like, this is the kind of issues. Like, this is when you think about it more deeply. Like, these are the kinds of things that architects can solve. The answer is not always a building. Sometimes it's not a building at all. And just by having an architect at the table you're able to think outside of the box. You know, the lamest way we could possibly say that as architects, the most cliche thing we could say. But here it is, like we are licensed problem solvers. There are so many, there are so many groups out there, healthcare, accounting, law, all these things. Like it, it is very, like this is how we do things and they can't design themselves out of a paper bag, right? As soon as you put an architect at the table, it's like, whoa, they're different. <laughs> That is a new thing that we don't have here. And they bring value. But that value, because you can't necessarily put a dollar amount, even though I think in the example I just gave, you absolutely could, then we, we don't take advantage of that. And this gets back to something that we just talked about on, an, on a recent episode. It might have been the same episode that we talked about your LinkedIn post. But this whole idea of how do we actually put the value on what we do? And we have a really hard time doing that all the way back to school. We are we don't have courses in business. We don't have courses in money. 
we don't talk about this stuff and we are taught to suffer for our art, hmm. right? That's, I just listened to an episode with, on, there's a podcast called Designed by Architectural Record and they had Marlon Blackwell on there. It was an older episode, but it was, it, he reinforced that message and I, I love the work, but at the same time, it's like, you got to dig in and you've got to suffer for your art. Like that, it's still the theme that is the academic theme. And then it does translate into practice. And, and our profession feeds on its young. And I mean, the, these problems, like you're saying, Evelyn, they're not being addressed. And it's like, we've made it through previous recessions. We'll make it through another one. It's like, yeah, there's a lot of grit and determination, but this is not what this profession deserves to be. This isn't this. There's too many people in this profession that will just be like, see you later. I'm out. Yeah. I'm not going to do this anymore. And then where are we going to be? That's all I got. <laughs> got off my soapbox there. No, I mean, and then I would say the caveat to that is for those of us who have stepped away and yourself too, Evan, like I feel like we're no longer a part of the club, right? So, mm -hmm. so we force people out and then... And then they're no longer welcome to to be a part of the community in 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 some sense. Here's the problem with that is you know when we lose when we go out of architecture and not to plug somebody else's thoughts, but their 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 tagline, yeah, their their tagline is, you know, nobody ever really stops to ask why why have we lost so much talent that we. That clearly in like your post and in everybody else's conversations, we really honestly, truly, desperately need. We never ask why. It's always, oh, well, they, they weren't happy here. So, you know, good riddance to them. You know, it's it's always that anytime somebody leaves the, the a firm or something and they're just like, oh, something's gone wrong. Yeah, it was Evan's fault. No one stops to analyze, you know, the facts of the matter are is that they're not broken. We are. And oh, well, so, no one wants to take accountability, right? <laughs> exactly. 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 Yeah. So, Evelyn, one of the types of responses that I saw on your post was the kind of just labeling the post as like pessimism, general pessimism towards the profession. And I don't see it like that at all. No. I, there's some other podcasts that I listen to where, I mean, they are hypercritical of the things that they love, right? And and to me, that's the difference. It's like we we learned to defend our projects in school. We learned to develop a thick skin when it came to those things. And we made our way through that with passion. And if we can't now look at ourselves in the mirror and say, is this who we really want to be? Those of us who are saying, look, man, like we see other examples out there and it works how can we get to that point where it's generally working for more people in the profession that isn't pessimism at all i mean this is like this criticism is meant and i mean that word in the best way possible it's because we care about this profession so much and we do think it deserves to exist but differently and we there has to be somebody leading that perspective and so to label these kinds of posts and these kinds of podcasts as too pessimistic and you're, we're not the ones turning people away. We're trying to figure out a way to get this profession to be better in the future. Yeah. 
Has wait, has anyone ever labeled this podcast pessimistic? No, uh, probably. I sure don't they know. have. <laughs> I'm sure they have. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. you're, you're amazingly spot on there because the thing about it is, is that, and I look at so both of you as as an example are let's just say architects and architectural adjacent. So you're not still in the trenches getting your fingers dirty on, you know, specific projects and stuff. But the the reason, you know, the reason why you and, and other people leave the profession and go to like say architecturally adjacent professions are is because that passion that you guys have for the profession has led you to go and innovate outside of the profession because the profession is so reluctant to innovate itself. And so it's like, okay, I, I always used to believe in the, the theory of, well, you know, I mean, it's change from within, change from within. But the more and more I earn these gray hairs, the more and more I realize, holy crap, within isn't wanting to change. They don't care about change. They just care about the single-minded focus. Let's get these projects. Let's be competitive about these things. Let's see if we can, you know, ride the waves of these recessions and everything else. But they don't try to innovate. And we see it with tech. We see it in business and everything else. They're on the wave of innovation that we seem so reluctant to do for ourselves. And Evan said it best on numerous occasions. If we're not willing to innovate, somebody else will. It starts to push us more towards that obsolescence. And when I we talk about, like, like let's be clear, though, there is no lack of innovation in an architect's mind, right? My right. true the 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 lack of where innovation occurs is that it all happens like at the project level. For the client. Yeah. For the client. Yeah. But not not at the business level, not at the um kind of how how we manage people level. My big takeaway this year was if you look at the majority of professional development in architecture, it's not about managing teams. It's not about even being a better manager. They're all, if you look at the majority of the CEUs out there, well, and granted, a lot of manufacturers put on CEUs, but it's all about building technology and projects, right? And mm -hmm. that's fine, yep. but that's not going to move the profession Right. Mm -hmm. Totally agree with you. And it's interesting that it's kind of geared the way if you look at it from kind of like the CEU's perspective. I mean, you almost would want to say AIA or whoever, you know, NCARP, whoever's like offering up, you know, CEUs that rather than expecting X amount of HSWs or have some of those learning units actually be in business management, in project management, in team building, in leadership, in in even like mentoring, because, you know, we have a, you know, we have a problem with that, you know, especially when, you know, you kind of throw them into the machine and sometimes the machine's not ready for them. And you, a lot of people you know, basically say, wow, this isn't what I expected out of architecture. And, you know, I, I've seen kids that I've worked with in the past that are like, you know, this isn't what I expected out of my profession. I kind of feel like I'm about to throw away five, six years of education because I'm leaving. The the thing that I see a lot of in the profession, maybe we can talk about some of the issues that exist that are more nuanced and maybe not as obvious on the outside, but the the 
length of time that it takes for somebody to get to a point where they can become a leader of change in their firm is also the point in which they are starting to think about retirement. Like that's that should be obvious. That and that's kind of crazy, right? But but at some point you get beyond the point of putting your neck on the line because you want to actually change the trajectory of a firm because if you do you could screw up your own chances of getting out alive, right? Not dying at the drafting table. And and I see that all over. There there is a there is a larger and larger contingent of people who want to be safe and comfortable. They've built their entire career to get there and it's hard to change. Now, okay, that's not everybody, obviously. That is that is some people though. There is a high reluctance or a, a big reluctance to allow younger people to lead in these firms, right? These firms are established. They've done it the way that they've always done it. And so and so I think that that's a reality that we're coming up against. The other reality that I think we're coming up against is that well, maybe let's just talk about that one. Let's just address that one for a moment. Is I because before I get to the next one, I want to just see if you guys have any have any thoughts about that because that that to me is something that needs to be said out loud. I think and I'm hopeful it'll go away. I'm hopeful that mindset will we will move beyond that mindset when the boomers start to retire. And nothing against the boomers. I just think it's a it's it's those are the individuals that have been in the organization the the longest and it's at at this point in their career why would they why would they actually want to change frankly right but i do see you know and janine and i had a wonderful conversation with kind of the generation z right the ones that are coming out and they are so much more willing to question the system than i yes. feel like mm-hmm the future than I feel like any generation has been has been up to. And they are going to make their choices on who they work for based on who is willing to be more responsive to their questions. And absolutely. You know, it was interesting is on on a bus ride with actually, you know, one of Evan's uh, former colleagues at the Chicago AIA convention. Uh, we were having this conversation, you know, kind of project manager to project manager about, gosh, you know, we really can't get, you know, the Gen Zs to like, you know, stay late and like go that extra mile and give that 110% and, you know, all the cliche stuff about, I I used to work 12 hours a day and all this other stuff. Why won't they? And there was a point, there was a time when I would say, yeah, you know, I mean, I uh, I remember my very first day after school. You know, I stayed till 2 a.m. trying to get out a, a project for a presentation that they were having the next day. And, you know, it's just like everybody's got to pay their dues. And I'm like, it was it was all based off of these bad habits that were established by the our predecessors that then kind of instilled it into us. And we're trying to feel like it's a rite of passage that we pass on these bad habits to, you know, the next generation. And the next generation is actually like, no, no, that's bullshit. No, I don't want to do the same thing that you're doing because that just doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem productive. That doesn't seem healthy. And, you know, Evan kind of talked about the dying at your, you know, the drafting table. And and I always joke that that's my retirement plan is, you know, dying at my desk 
And it's only because that's oh. the kind of philosophy that was instilled in like our generation and the previous generations. It's just like, you know, give it everything because architecture is 100% of your life. And it's just like, it really isn't. I mean, it is if you love it, but it doesn't have to kill you. It doesn't have to take everything out of you. And I think, yes. So I was definitely, and then like, I, I'm, I guess I'm aware of that too. There was definitely, I was so judgy of people that like left the office early, you know, <laughs> yeah. I would like, Oh yeah. Yeah. But then I was like, but is that the right thing? Like, should we like, what, what, what is that? What type of behaviors am I encouraging by like right. making people yeah. stay, stay later just for the sake of staying later. And and I'm having them bill all of these extra hours at a time when they're actually probably not productive at all. Um, right, right. So it's like, yeah. But yes, I mean, I've had to kind of, I was like, you can e either be really critical of what they're doing or you can ask like, or you can come to a realization that what they're doing is actually smart because they're setting boundaries that we never set for ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, and that was the realization that I finally got to is like, wait, you know, we are being judgy or critical. You know, it's like, why are you leaving so early? And it's not, it, it, it's really actually, it should be more jealousy. It's just like, wait, you did your job for the day. You're on your way home. You're going to go hang out with friends or family or whatever else. I mean, and then we never stop to ask ourselves why we aren't doing the same thing. We think, you know, this goes back to actually a post that you you made probably about a week ago about you staying home with your sick daughter. And then when you got back to work, what was the reality of when you got back to work is like, did the sky fall? Did everything come to a halt? No, you know, business was usual. You know, there were some things that were probably waiting for you, but at the end of the day, and that's what we seem to forget in architecture is you don't have to kill yourself to get that last little bit because you're right. I mean, we, you know, there, there, there comes a time when productivity kind of like wanes, your creativity kind of wanes throughout the day. You need to stop. You need to relax. You need to reset. And we're wondering why they're leaving early when they sh are wondering why we're still staying late. There's a difference, right, that that we have to point out. So so one thing I want to throw in a disclaimer earlier. I know there's people who are in the older generations who are like, that's not me at all. Like, I'm pushing hard. And I think there are cool people out there who are like, I've got nothing to lose. I'm going to push hard now. And and so I just want to acknowledge that, of yes. course, those people exist. Yes. Yep. Now, now with this story, uh, there are <laughs> one of the bad habits in here, I think, that we have – I think everybody who's here right now, the three of us, can relate to, which is that hard work gets rewarded with more hard work mm -hmm. in architecture, right? And so if you're a kick-ass project manager or designer or whatever it is that your role is, and you get something done quickly, you're going to get more of it. Like, you're just, you're going to get more of it. And that is how, again, like, that has reinforced the way that we were trained. If somebody is not very good at their job, We've seen the lack of mentorship that happens in offices, and there's people who do leave on time, and they're not very good at it, like you said, Evelyn. Like they're they're probably not productive yet because they haven't learned how to do all the things. And it's like, yeah, if you leave, I can get my work done. I think we see that too. 
And so there's like this real disconnect in there because there are people who are kick ass and they leave on time. And there are people who are like, why are they leaving? We still have so much to do. It's like, well, I did what I said I was going to do and I got it done on time. And now I get, I get my life balance part out of it. And then I, I don't know. There's, there's a lot in there, but I, I, I think it's worth pointing out that like hard work in architecture traditionally has been rewarded with more hard work, longer hours, more dedication, not less. And so, and there's kind of this elusive next level out there that is not apparent to everybody, like what it actually takes to get to the next level in a company. And it's like, just keep doing more of what you're doing. You're such a great performer. It's like, well, what does that mean? And for how long? It's like, just, I'll let you know. Like we see that all the time too, right? Yeah. I do. I mean, the hard work is, but that is true. I would say that's true, not only for the architecture industry, like, right. The, I feel like the busiest people are always busy because, because they're always pushing like in the best way possible mm-hmm. to right? you know, like these, these, I was just going on a walk with a, a coworker of mine uh, the, from the future forum, you know, and she, we're trying to like, a lot of people have these like multi hyphen, not multi hyphenate. What is the? They have these careers that, um, if you look at a lot of entrepreneurs out there, they're doing a lot of different things in a lot of different sectors, right? Mm-hmm. To build, well, a lot of different ways to bring in money. Frankly, so they're. Mm-hmm. But I feel like, the busiest people are always going to be the busiest people. That's just like inherent. But the difference between architecture. And I think other places, like when those people got get busy, they also make money and they also build bigger companies when they get busy. In architecture, when we get busy, um, we get overtime if you're at a good firm. <laughs> <laughs> but the the reward system isn't nearly as as the same as it is in other yeah, industries. Yeah, we talked about this in our last episode. It's like the, the mythical bonus. Like you don't know when or how much it's going to be. And so therefore, like you work hard to get to the point where hopefully it's obvious that you should be rewarded with a bonus. But but it is elusive and and it sits out there in the future potentially, right? If the firm does well, like there's so many, there's so many little variables in that equation that, that I, I agree. And, and I don't think that that's, the right way to do it. There, there's other, there's other ways to do this. There are like uh, Cormac mentioned it. Like he has a buddy who went to work for a, a construction firm, and like at the end of the project, they look at the performance of the yeah. project and they get a bonus based on that. Right then, it's not like that typically in architecture, right? It's it's once a year, maybe if you're lucky, right? And and there's so many, like I said, so many variables in that equation. Yeah, and even in that one, it, you take all of the money from, like, say, the end of year profitability, and pull it all together and say, okay, you know, here's kind of like the distribution scale. You know, you're here, 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 and you get these, you know, this level of of bonus. And, and a lot of times, uh, people who have been working on, say, long term projects and stuff like that, don't really see or feel valued when oh, wait, so I've been killing myself on this project. I've worked 80 hours a week for however long. And all I get is, you know, X amount of dollars at the end of the year. And it's nothing that's really tied to the performance of the project. It's just kind of somebody's, you know, guesstimate of like, you know, this is what we feel like 
you know, junior staff should get, or this is what we feel like, you know, associates or senior associates should get kind of thing. And it never really, and so there's, there's almost like this, you know, you know, you get the buy-in that you're, you know, you're valued for the work that you, you know, provided that year. And, you know, what was amazing is it, you know, just slight correction, he, he went to work for a developer. Um, okay. And that developer basically said, you know, you will get a bonus, you know, at the end of the year, but you'll also get a bonus for the, you know, the performance of this project. And so, you know, if we're successful coming in under time and under budget and all of these other, you know, there's like a scale of, you know, like the size of the project and the, you know, complexity and profitability of the project that you actually benefit from. And so you actually benefit from the performance of the project. And, and we don't really see that. It, it would be almost amazing if that was something that architecture firms do, because it would almost guarantee that you would see an interesting turnaround in the way projects are staffed, the way projects are performed, you know, all of this stuff. Well, well if, you, if I could just ask real quick, Cormac, tell me exactly how you contribute to the success of the business where you work, and then apply that same question to everybody you work with. And, and just ask yourself, could you answer that question and could they answer that question? I think a lot of them would probably answer it by, you know, a successful performance of the project. Um, you know, they would, they would look at it more as, as a project base, but then they would also say, okay, well, you know, if I'm successfully performing this project for this client, that this client then sees that, you know, it's business development through a successful project. You know, yeah, and but I think it comes back to personal, like my personal bonus, like not how am right, I, right. what do I do today that contributes to the success of this business that I'm hired to work for for a salary, and I think that's a huge issue in our profession is that mm -hmm. people can't actually answer that question, right. and so it's like my job is to get to tomorrow, <laughs> right, and then tomorrow the job is to get to the next day. And, and we, we kind of have this, again, not knowing, we don't have the business roots and those aren't really talked about out loud, right? Uh, and, and people don't understand where they fit in that value chain to be able to answer that. So it makes it very difficult to, to, for people to even think like that because we don't talk about it. It's not part of our culture. But I also think, and this is something that I've always struggled with, with um, architecture is it takes so long to complete a project. Like I worked at, I there was only one ground up building in my entire career in architecture that I saw from beginning to end, from the stakeholder engagement process to full completion. And that was over the course of five years. And my role on that project the response, like as we went through different change, like stages, it changed. But then, who's to say that over that course of the five years, like, you know, when when would my title change from job captain to project manager? You, you know, there there isn't. You're always the project manager for that project, <laughs> no matter how long it it lasts. So, so I think there needs to be. There needs to be more transparent measurement, which I think all firms would benefit from you know from an accountability understanding like this is how many hours we've assigned for you 
to put towards this phase. And then at the end of each phase, saying like, where are you with our hours? How did we do? And to make a bonus calculation, maybe even at the end of each phase, because we bill out per phase. Um, yeah. And then and then go from there. I mean, the, the thing with software and technology is you're shipping all the time, right? And you're finishing one thing and moving on to the next thing. And it's very easy to look back and say, this is what I accomplished over the year. I feel like it's harder to do that because of the size and the scale of our projects. And the only way we can truly do that is by being more transparent about the expectations at that stage and then saying they accomplished what they needed to accomplish within that phase of work. I, th I think that that, is, that it illuminates a huge problem in our profession, which is that we do bill by the phase. I just had a conversation with Robert Ewan over at Monograph. And one, you know, obviously, Robert is very involved and dedicated to practice operations and business performance and healthy businesses and all these things. And, and he's, he's like, you have to bill every two weeks. You have to change the way you do it. If you don't, here, this, this also illuminates one of the biggest problems in our, in our profession, which just has enormous ripple on effects, which are people make up shit on their time cards, period. <laughs> That's what they do. <laughs> Why? Because it makes me look better. It makes me look better if I put less hours. And if you don't, even if you aren't the one who's doing that, there's somebody else who is, right? Yeah. Or there's somebody who's leading a team who is. There's somebody hiding hours on this project, putting it over there, or they just don't report them at all. And so this fictitious statement, this, this fictici fictitious ledger of hours gets built up so that we can't even properly say what the, the performance on the next project is going to be. And, and so all of these, these things compound, right? The, the idea of, of taking that power back to our clients and saying, no, just like every business out there, you're going to pay on this schedule. This is why all of the software companies have gone to subscription models, right? We need recurring revenue. Yep. You need the recurring revenue so that you can actually pay your employees on a normal basis and you don't have to worry so much about, do, are we going to have enough at that one point to make payroll? It's like we have money coming in constantly. And I, I think it's interesting, right? Because this it's like a simple shift. I mean, I say it's simple. I know it's not not incredibly simple, but this is one of those things where you look how many business out there businesses out there have figured this out. A lot. They've figured this out. This is not rocket science and this is not like some elusive unicorn. This is something that you can actually do so that you one change that you can make, the other one is like report actual hours, right? I don't care what it took. Tell me what it actually took to do the thing. And, and then we can actually have good data to base our performance and our predictions on for the next projects. Yeah, but we haven't even aligned our billing practices or at least our phases in the time phases with what's the new reality. I mean, because that's the true. old traditional method, because the old traditional method was we build a low percentage for, you know, concept design, schematic design, design development's a little bit bigger. And then we do the big bulk of our fees in right. construction documents. But right. with BIM, that's completely changed everything. It's because we're putting so much more effort in in the front end. But we're every not getting, single phase, I think you yeah, mean. 
Well, or yes, putting but... in a tremendous amount of effort in every single phase. <laughs> but if you think about it, we haven't. We still don't build that. We don't build that way. And if you think about it, like I'll give you a good example of. I've always been reluctant to say, you know, like the projects that I'm working on, but you know, a project that I'm working on right now. Some of the phases are really long phases, and we're talking about a phase that could go almost a full year. And so we're not going to build a whole year, you know, of production time until you know we actually finish that, get it signed off on, and then we can submit our invoice for a year. Who else does that? No one. Yeah, <laughs> for a good reason. Right. For no a very sure. good reason. And then yet we complain as architects that all of these software companies have moved over to software as a service. Right. But you're right. getting newly updated software on a more frequent basis. And it's it's a more it's a more sustainable I mean, it's a business decision by these software companies, yeah. right? It's a more sustainable right. model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we could either complain about it or we could learn from it. Right. Yeah. Right. And, but see, now that goes back to my comment about the, the the lack of innovation in architectural business is seeing how other people are doing it, learning and adapting how, you know, how our business model can kind of like react to similar business models out there so that we don't have to worry about the recessions because we are actually shoring up things. Because if you think about it, if... We're, you know, not billing something out for a year and a recession hits within that time. Guess what? We're not going to get those fees because they're going to say, Mm -hmm. well, I can't pay you because I, I have no, you know, revenue coming in, so I can't pay you. And so guess what? Now there's two companies that don't have revenue coming in. And, you know, over the course of like a large project, you know, billing at long increments you know, is just setting you, yourself up for, you know, potential problems if markets shift. Yeah, absolutely. And so what can you do now to prepare for that, right? I think there's so many ways to turn the telescope back in on ourselves or the microscope back in on ourselves and just say, <laughs> who do we want to be when that happens? Like that that future is cyclical, so it is inevitable. It's not like it's not going to happen, right? And so how... Do we actually survive that and make it better than the last time? How do we hang on to those people with the experience that we need to survive the next decade this time instead of them leaving our firms and leaving our profession and not coming back? What do we do to be proactive about that? I think that's why it, it is so important to be critical of the profession at large. It's it's not to say like the every firm has it figured out or is doing better than the other like there's we can do better everywhere and so if and if we don't if we're not critical about that then we've given up on ourselves as a profession that goes full circle to the criticism right we're we're critical because we love it we're not critical because x because we're pessimistic because you know even if they view like see even this conversation as pessimistic it isn't it's it's a valuable conversation about how identifying the problem and talking about, you know, constructively talking about the solutions. And even if we haven't come up with any solutions, you know, the easy button for the profession right now in our conversation, we've at least started to talk about it and and start the realization that, yeah, there are things that we need to do. There are people out there that are willing to do them. 
You know, it's just like, and are you one of those kind of, you know, mm-hmm. questions? Or yeah, are you going to just think sit that, back and kind of cry? Well, the, the, somebody has to have these conversations. And if yep. there are people afraid to have these conversations, that's one thing. But if they're afraid to have these conversations in public, I think that is the, the, the kind of siloed, um, perspective that a lot of the profession has been in for so long has not done us any favors. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of communication that younger generations expect because they've grown up in a very oh, yeah. communication-based society. And if we're not willing to engage in that, then then where are we going to be? I mean, they're, they're just not going to come and show up for this kind of stuff. If, if, if it is completely behind the curtain, um, the... I don't know. These conversations need to be happening and they need to right. be happening. And this, this is a great place for it. Podcasting is a great place for it. And, and I'm, I'm here for it. So, and I know you guys are too. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, so one last thought. So, you know, it's interesting because you, you say that it is, I was reading an article about how it used to be illegal and, and maybe I misunderstood the to intent of the conversation to market yourself in architecture. And I was just like, it's a business, <laughs> you know, like how archaic of a thought was that when you just like, you know, I mean, no wonder we we struggle at business because we were never allowed to talk about business. We were never allowed to market ourselves for a business. We were just, you know, like it's kept behind the curtain. That's one of the it most, was- that's one of those most misunderstood things in architecture that still gets brought up. Like the myth of that is still out there and it's still very strong. We're not allowed mm-hmm. to talk about our fees. Of course yeah. you're allowed to talk about your fees. You're not allowed to collude and, and create fees amongst firms for profession wide. Like you, you can't do that, but you can talk about fees. You can, you, again, you can market your business. You're a business just like everybody else. People don't just automatically know who you are and come knocking on your door. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's a very misunderstood concept in the profession of architecture still to this day. Well, but then you also have those like the work will speak for itself. It it will, but there's a lot of other people whose work <laughs> speaks for themselves too. So why aren't we, you know, like advertising ourselves as you know equal or better to other people? You know? So mm-hmm. yeah, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it it goes back to your comment, Evelyn, about like there's the generations that kind of lived by these rules or habits that as they start to transition out, you know, younger people start coming in and questioning the profession is when we really will start to say, oh, yeah, why did we do it that way? We should mm-hmm. never do that again. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> but you have to step back and you have to have that objective viewpoint because if, if you're not willing to get outside of your, like you, you guys have both talked about thing, viewpoints that you have had that have changed in your short time in the profession short time in the air quotes right there right but 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 it it just shows that it's possible and and this is the kind of thing i i can come up with examples of that myself too it these are what has to happen these are the kinds of things that have to happen to make progress and again if we don't do it for us somebody else will do it to us and i would rather us do it i would way rather be, have a seat at that table and choose myself or you guys, I'll choose you to to do this because you're willing to and you do care about the profession and you care about the future of it. 
uh, it's it's not just I'm not willing to just let it happen to us. I don't think that that's that's what anybody inside the profession actually wants. No, but yes, but we don't take action to to stop that. And I think what we don't realize if we're not looking at what's happening beyond architecture is that it already is happening to us, right? We have right. um the cottage like we have the tech startups already, like Cottage, who do who does ADUs in the Bay Area. It's still stick build, but they have the they they've done they've created a a, a whole service client model, like a single service client model for individuals to go and get an ADU that that is better than the typical client service model that an architecture firm provides. And their design force is driven by 1099 contractors who come in and, and do the work, right? So there's, there's already kind of new models of practice forming in a way Mm -hmm. um, already. So it's, it's already happening to us. And I think that's the biggest difference the acceleration of it's already happening to us. Like that's, for me, that's the biggest difference. The longer things have, you know, for all of those people saying we've always done it this way, we're going to make it through the next recession. The acceleration of change is exponential and we have not been able, we've not been willing to to partake in that change. Um, And and when we have, it's not nearly at the rate that we we need to. Right. That seems like a good place to to maybe wrap this conversation up. But thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It's great to see you in person again. And I, I hope that we can do this another time uh, under, you know, maybe a, a happier set of, uh, you know, commentary, but but not for a lack of, of passion, right? Uh, this is all, all important conversations to be having. And uh, again, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, we appreciate it. And keep posting because it's given us some good fodder to for great discussions because <laughs> it's just showing us there are, as you're proving, is there's like-minded people who are really, really wanting to take this profession forward. There are. I feel like, I feel like there's a, I feel like the tide's changing. And I guarantee most of it is not, is not coming from even my generation. It's coming from the next generation. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Agreed. All right. Until next time. Well, thank you very much. Thanks all.